Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. In the late 1980s, former Washington Post writer Pete Hamill made an interesting observation about television in an essay he wryly titled, Crack and the Box. After covering the drug addict beat for years as a reporter, Hamill stumbled upon what he believed to be a comparative factor between drug addiction and television viewing, what he called the unearned high. He watched the faces of young children surrounded by the squalor of drug-addicted parents, staring vacantly at the images on a television screen in one tenement slum after another. As he walked outside, he saw those same vacuous stares on the faces of the drug addicts huddled in the doorway along the streets. Through his observations of the Western world, where 2% of the world's population consumes 65% of the world's hard drugs, Hamill posited that years of living vicariously through televised entertainment could create an insatiable drive for constant amusement, rivaling an addict's craving for a drug-induced stupor. He became convinced that spending hour after hour and year after year in search of constant emotional diversion ultimately produced the empty yearning of a drug addict, perhaps drug addiction itself. Now, this was pre-internet, and at the time... Hamill's words seemed to scientists more like the incoherent ramblings of an eager journalist, but now, of course, we know that his pre-neuroscientific voice was prophetic in nature. The connection is all too clear. Hour after hour, day after day of siphoning off vicarious emotions is now shown to lead to an adrenaline addiction. Seeing a like on social media pages creates an instant rush of dopamine, the neurotransmitter that creates feelings of pleasure and rewards in the brain. Two researchers from the University of Michigan developed a theory they called Incentive Sensitization Theory of Addiction, where they showed that the brain mediates between liked and wanted rewards, creating a dopamine loop between the two domains and fostering an addiction that can, quote, never be fully satisfied. Likes are social rewards for the brain. The drive for likes conditions us not only to an addiction of those existing likes, it also creates a craving for more likes. So we post more content. We jump through more hopes, through more hoops. We become people pleasers because the praise of man becomes our ultimate goal. This is a very important construct for us as Christians. There are two fears at war, right? The fear of man versus the fear of God, the desire to please man or the desire to please God. Each one of us drives us in a very different direction, so it's vital that we keep our finger on the pulse of our hearts and our navigational instruments. What is driving us? Years ago, as a researcher, I had to ask my audiences to contemplate the question, is it plausible that television and other forms of media could serve as a form of socialization? Today, of course, we know it's obvious. We are all aware of its power for potential, its potential for influence. Taken together with the observations of a host of other futurists and researchers, we see that clear potential for significant influence. The modern Westerner is predominantly a psychosocial being, amassing behavior patterns through an amalgamation of social and psychological conditioning. But 
exactly how much power does media have in the realm of social influence. Well, let's look at the effects of some of the most effective marketing campaigns in psychosocial development. We'll look at the history of persuasive media appeals, the power of film, the emergence of the visual culture, and a rationale for why media appeals may be more suggestive and salient than ever before, an idea I call persuasive positioning. Over the next few episodes, we'll address the overt and covert messages of media, as well as how those have affected us. And most importantly, we'll learn what we can do to avoid being inadvertently persuaded by the power of media. Now, I give you some homework last week, remember? We talked about the test of those junk food ads and how easy it is for people to recognize those images, most of which were absorbed through a lifetime of direct advertising. And I asked you to be aware of the frequencies that are influencing your worldview. Tune in to the frequency of the Holy Spirit today, friend. Don't allow the frequencies and patterns of the world to dictate your thoughts, your beliefs, your actions. We talked a little bit a few episodes back about one of the interesting responses in mass behavioral shift, which was the extraordinary change to trust and reliance on online sources that's been developing over the last decade. Media has begun masquerading as a purveyor, not just of entertainment, but of truth. People see it as a trustworthy source of information, a trusted friend. In one study, Kaiser Family Foundation found that 52% of viewers report picking up health information that they, quote, trust to be accurate from primetime TV shows. One in four said that these shows are among their, quote, top three sources for health information. Now, remember, these EE strategies, entertainment education strategies, are based on an agenda, a system of behavior supported by a particular group or lobbyist. So it's easy to see this potential for persuasion. Nine out of 10 of the regular viewers in the study said that they learned about disease or disease prevention from television, with about half citing primetime or daytime entertainment shows. Additionally, KFF, the study, reports that almost half of the regular viewers who heard about a health issue on a primetime TV show said they took one or more actions as a result of watching that episode. 42% told someone about the story, which is that indicator of influence. Remember, parasocial interaction we talked about last time. 16% told someone to take action or took action themselves. 9% visited a clinic or doctor as a result of the program. And 5% called in a clinic, a healthcare facility, or a hotline number as a result of viewing that program. So behavior is directly being influenced by media. Parasocial interaction, we talked about that last time. It's where the person begins to view a character as a real person, talks about that character as a real person, begins identifying with that character as a real person, and then ultimately adopts the person person's off-screen as well as often on-screen behavior. This is how celebrity culture shapes American thought and behavior, and it is definitely not for the better, if you were wondering. KFF reports that after watching a primetime show about hospitals, 32% of viewers sought out additional information about a health issue, 14% contacted a doctor or other healthcare provider as a direct result of the topic addressed in the program. Many regular viewers said that they saw many regular viewers showed significant increased awareness about health issues addressed on the show. Now, again, this is agenda driven. For example, one show demonstrated, quote, emergency contraception and KFF noted a 17 percent increase in numbers who were now aware of that format, that method of abortion. 
the Kaiser Family Foundation survey looked at a three-year run of a specific show and found that 53% of viewers said that they learn about important health issues, 51% talk with their family and friends about those issues, and 32% said information, quote, from the show helped them make choices about their own family's health care. Again, very sobering. These shows are conditioning, shaping, collecting collective patterns of behavior based on their values. And the shift in behavior is not for the better. It's anti-family, anti-purity, anti-Christian in nature. Now, education plays an important role in these results. What the study found was that the more education someone had, the less likely they were to be able to be swayed by the information they saw on the screen. For the And then the rationale there is that hopefully, ideally, a more educated person would have learned to think for himself or think for herself. Now, the college education doesn't necessarily serve as a protection from influence. It definitely depends on where you went to college and whether you were taught what to think or how to think, which should be the benefit of a college education. But people are clearly not watching television um, just passively. That paradigm, their worldview is being actively shaped by the information that's being taken in. The potential for information and for misinformation in these campaigns is evident. After a particular episode aired about a specific STD, the number of viewers who said they had heard of the STD in one study doubled from 24 to 48%, just about double. And the number who could correctly define it tripled from 9% to 28%. Among those who had heard of that particular STD, 32% said they had learned it from the show. And according to Kaiser Family Foundation's National Survey of Physicians, one in five doctors say they are consulted very or somewhat often about specific diseases or treatments their patients heard about on TV shows. Are you catching this? The line between fantasy and reality has been blurred. Now, as we might expect from the data, many soap opera viewers report learning about health issues from TV as well. According to that KFF study, among regular viewers of daytime drama, about 48%, about half of those surveyed, said they learned something about a disease from watching a soap opera. Four in 10 said that they learn about disease and disease prevention from primetime TV shows. 41% primetime, 38% talk shows. Since the time of Hamill's pre-internet observations, culture has undergone some radical changes, not only externally, but also internally. As we talked about in the last few episodes, the Western world is now lunging furiously toward a visually centered form of communication, a concept I've referred to as visuality. One of the most important components of visuality is the commanding power of the image, an image that often serves to restructure our consciousness. The late Neil Postman, former chair of the Department of Communication Arts and Sciences at New York University and one of the most well-known media critics of the modern era, put it simply, we can never underestimate the psychological impact of language's massive migration from the ear to the eye. Prior to printing, says Postman, all human communication occurred in a social context, but Transforming communication strategies and technologies began to give us new ways of thinking, a new lens with which to see the world. 
In the same way, the new era of visuality creates a lens through which we view the world, a way to understand the hidden hierarchy of virtual sociology and our place in it. If the impersonality and repeatability, as Postman put it, of the TypeScript assumed a certain measure of authority, how much more the image? It's commanding, authoritarian, stamped indelibly on billboards and magazines as a reminder of its all-consuming power. And if the book conditioned people to think more abstractly, the powerful impress of visuality is conditioning people to think more concretely, less imaginatively, more media centrally. Our vision has been dominated by a singularly focused point of view. If the book culture destroyed, quote, knowledge monopolies, as Postman put it, the image culture has reinstated them. With only a handful of primary owners of worldwide mainstream media, it's clear that there's an elite class, one to which, as Frontline put it, most of us don't belong. And just like an insecure teenager might seek the approval of a domineering upperclassman to rule the social world of high school, Western culture is finding itself drawn into the maddening myopia of media centrality. When Samuel Morse sent the first distance human communication message, he asked his recipient to consider what God had wrought, a question we might understand to be an awestruck but fearful acknowledgement of the medium's potential power or purpose. He was not the only one to contemplate such staggering or superficial possibilities. Upon hearing of Morse's telegraph, Henry David Thoreau was rumored to have asked what two men in separate parts of the country could possibly have to say of value to one another. We too find ourselves impacted by this question today. Though we're surrounded by more information than has ever been present in the history of mankind, most of what we hear and see consists of irrelevant stories and statistics, trivia. The vast majority of televised and printed news stories center on disconnected, disembodied ideas that serve to do little more than distract us from our own real lives. In this realm, as others have noted, we give up something of our individual self to gain entrance into the collective whole. As Marshall McLuhan wrote, when man lives in an electric environment, his nature is transformed and his private identity is merged with the corporate whole. He becomes mass man. As the speed of information moves far beyond the individual capacity to transport it, human communication plunged headlong into a world that can only be understood retrospectively. Postman writes, the telegraph eliminated in one stroke both time and space as dimensions of human communication and therefore disembodied information to an extent that far surpassed both the written and the printed word. For electric speed was not an extension of human senses, but a denial of them. It took us into a world of simultaneity and instancy that went beyond the human experience. In doing so, it eliminated personal style, indeed human personality itself, as an aspect of communication. This is the ultimate groupthink. If the telegraph created a world of anonymous, decontextualized information, it was a mere infant predecessor to the sweepingly disembodied communication formats of the internet world today. But for all this communicative ability, is what we say in these formats really worthwhile? Or has technology so transformed the very nature of communication itself that what once would have been considered meaningless and trivial conversation now masquerades as news or truth or petty public interest? stories? Postman answers the question for us. The Telegraph created an audience, he said, and a market, not only for news, but for fragmented, discontinuous, and essentially irrelevant news, which to this day is the main commodity of the news industry. 
Postman believed that the television trivialized culture, bringing secrets of the psychologist's office to the public eye, where, like a hideous roadway accident, passersby can't keep from looking away. The screen, he said, does not record events, it creates events. Now, there have been many socio-emotional casualties associated with the rise of commercialism and media centrality, more than space permits us to discuss right here. But one relevant cultural transformation Postman speaks of is the blurring of lines between acceptable patterns of behavior in childhood and adulthood. In his book, The Disappearance of Childhood, he talks about this rapid rise of what he calls the adultified child and the childified adult. There's this ever-increasing haziness in the lines between both youth and maturity, fantasy and reality. In similar fashion, PBS special Merchants of Cool discovers this comparable blurring of the lines between adulthood and childhood, a cultural transformation that researchers have linked to the frenzy of media centrality. The modern-day portraits that emerged from the study were, quote, mooks and midriffs, men who acted like hormonally-driven teenage boys and young women who acted like self-absorbed, sultry princesses. Postman's assertion that the, quote, book and the world of book learning represent almost an unqualified triumph over our animal nature. The requirements of a literate society, he said, made a finely honed image of guilt necessary, demanding that the body be subordinated to the mind. It's really important for us to look at this in modern culture because we see a parallel here. As literacy rates have fallen in the United States, there's this equivalent rise of brazenness, this lack of personal responsibility or even concern over actions that were once considered socially reprehensible. In fact, the word guilt has become a necessary evil in itself, decried in scores of modern self-help books, both secular and religious, as a farce, a man-made emotion of certain malevolence. This is a far cry from the lens of earlier generations where guilt was part of the vocabulary of both adult and child, as was discipline, by the way, but that's another episode altogether. In fact, Postman talks about John Locke's assertions that, quote, esteem and great disgrace are, of all others, the most, impa- the most powerful incentives to the mind when once it is brought to relish them. In other words, when we embrace them, they can help us to grow. They're, they're that tough discipline, that tough love. The Bible says that God disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And the failure in these areas, Locke blamed unfinch- unflinchingly on the child's guardians. Locke said, an ignorant, shameless, undisciplined child represents the failure, not of the child, but of the adults. Now, we can only imagine the impact of greater parental responsibility on child obedience and um, and even child just the discipline and the discipleship of children today. Of course, stronger parental guidance would at the in the large picture prevent such crowding of the hallways of juvenile detention centers. But more more parents instead tragically seem to identify with the parents who were recently thrown off a United Airlines flight because they, quote, couldn't get their three-year-old child to sit in her seat. Now, uh, I'm not the first to question the link between the frenetic structure of the screen's spew and the recent, quote, discovery of masses of children who can't sit still in their seat for a moment. Neil Postman, who is Andrew Postman's son, illuminates the fact that the disembodied news segments that float through the air on plastic smiles with topics ranging from violent crime to tips for healthy eating to celebrity news create a sequencing of information, quote, so random, so disparate in scale and value as to be even incoherent or psychotic. 
from this, it's easy to see how children can grow up desensitized and disconnected from the stark realities of those consequences. With the mass of meaningless information at our constant disposal, we find ourselves, as Aldous Huxley foresaw, in a situation where truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Like many other mechanistic inventions, Postman says the printing press took on a life of its own, a transformation he calls Frankenstein syndrome. One creates a machine for a particular and limited purpose, he said, but once the machine is built, we discover, sometimes to our horror, usually to our discomfort, always to our our surprise, that it has ideas of its own, that it is quite capable not only of changing our habits, but of changing our habits of mind. This is not unlike many facets of the modern computer. Take Spellcheck, for example. Many teachers and writers, instead of allowing their brains to think and weigh and consider and look up a word in a dictionary, they began to trust the spell check and lost their ability to spell. Or the way our contact lists think for us in our telephones, and we can't remember anyone's telephone number when we get a new cell phone. Now, these are simplistic examples, but we place our brains often on autopilot and hand the keys to the computer. And the computer or the screen gives us its own version of reality. It only recognizes a limited view of modern names and faces, casting a shadow of unreality on historical figures by underlining their names in red. Figures of biblical history or American history are labeled as outdated beyond reality by the computer's corrective red pen. As Postman said, the machine takes on a life of its own, exacting mysterious and possibly deleterious sociological change. Media, says Postman, favor particular kinds of content and therefore are capable of taking command of a culture. Modern man is often so thickly enveloped in the lens created for us by technologies that we're unable to interpret our realities except through those mediums. What's our response? Like the fish who survive a toxic river and the boatmen who sail on it, Postman says, there still dwell among us those whose sense of things is largely influenced by older and clearer waters. In other words, those who see the truth have to speak the truth. Postman's vision was for hope for the future, and our vision should be the same, hope. All around us right now, there's a culture crying out for hope. People are self-medicating on screen time, living vicariously through the lives of celebrities who should in no way, shape, or form be seen as role models for human behavior. What do we do? First, we get our own homes in order. Make sure you're connecting with the reality of the word instead of the narrative, the false narrative of the world. Second, be the light, be the joy, be the flame in the darkness that lights up the hearts around you, that restores hope to the hopeless, that gives peace to the anxious. Assess the impact screen time is having on you, on your family, your mindset, your communication, your behavior. The world is looking to us right now, friends. Remember, the institution that has shaped history for the better throughout our generations is not the state, and it's definitely not Hollywood. It's the church. So let's rise up and represent. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Nunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.